regardless of poverty or possessions, all believers face trials. And like trials, all believers also face temptations. A difference between the two is that trials come from outside believers, while temptations come from within believers. As discussed in James 1, 2-4, trials produce spiritual maturity, but temptations result in spiritual destruction. In James 1, 12-15, James sets out to distinguish between outward trials and inward temptations. While having written at length about outward trials, James lays out the rewards for believers who endure them. He then examines the issue of the inward temptations with which we struggle. Notably, James explains the true source of inward temptations. And perhaps in understanding the source of temptations, we will be better prepared to escape them. As well, by understanding the reward for trials, we will be better equipped to endure them. And so in verse 12, James deals with outward trials, and verses 13 to 15, he deals with inward temptations. Outward trials and inward temptations. Let's begin with verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Outward trials produce two rewards a present reward, and a future reward. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. Denotes our present reward. Now the word blessed, makarios, means to have joy as a result of possessing God's favor. That's grace. See, being blessed does not necessarily translate as being happy. Happiness is derived from what happens to someone. Certainly, when trials happen, they do not make us happy. Nonetheless, as we've already seen, we can choose to be joyful in the trial, knowing we have divine favor. Again, God's grace. Happiness is what you feel, but joy is what you choose to do in spite of how you feel. And so the command of James 1-2 says, Consider it pure joy. Now the announcement of blessing is known as a makarism, which is derived from the Greek term makarios, translated as blessing. The use of a makarism, or blessing, derives from the Old Testament, and it was used to identify those people who possessed God's favor. Deuteronomy 33:29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? Who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty? So your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places. Psalm 1:1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 144.15, how blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 3.13, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Now James' use of a macarism is similar to Jesus' use in the Beatitudes over in Matthew 5.3-12. to 
The word blessed here does not mean that we are free from trials, but rather that we have joy in trials because we possess God's grace or favor. When we persevere under trials, we will be joy-filled in the present. Again, joy is the present reward for enduring trials. Now, by interposing James 1, 2-4 upon the Beatitudes, it presents a clearer picture of what it means to be blessed. Being blessed is to be joyful. The poor in spirit ought to consider it pure joy, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who mourn ought to consider it pure joy, for they shall be comforted. The gentle ought to consider it pure joy, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness ought to consider it pure joy, for they shall be satisfied. The merciful ought to consider it pure joy, for they shall receive mercy. The pure in heart ought to consider it pure joy, for they shall see God. The peacemakers ought to consider it pure joy, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness ought to consider it pure joy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, consider it pure joy, for your reward in heaven is great. Now the future reward in heaven is the crown of life. This reward will be given once, James says, he has been approved. Now the verb, once he has been, genomai, means to enter into a particular condition. The verb is an aorist participle, meaning after the test is over. The term approved, dakamas, means to be recognized as genuine. Now, previously, James stated that one of the purposes of trials is to produce spiritual maturity. But here he provides another purpose for trials, to prove the genuineness of your faith. After the test or trials are over, then we will be given the crown of life. Now there's two terms used in the New Testament that are translated as crown. Diadema and Stephanos. A diadema does not refer to a metal crown with which modern readers are familiar. Instead, a diadema refers to a band of white linen or silk tied around the head as a symbol of royalty. As king, Christ will wear many diadema, or crowns, or white linen bands, when he returns to establish his kingdom, Revelation 19.12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or diademas, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. The term Stephanos refers to a band woven of oak, ivy, myrtle, olive leaves, or flowers. The Stephanos crowns were awarded to the winners of sporting events or military conflicts. And it's interesting that the New Testament depicts the Christian life as both an athletic event and warfare. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. 2 Timothy 2.3-4 Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, unlike the crowns or wreaths of James's day, which faded and withered, 
These crowns are unfading and imperishable. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable crown. Now, as I stated, the Stephanos crown, or victory crown, is going to be given to us after our time of testing or trials is over. More specifically, these crowns will be awarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And four different crowns will be given to believers, each related to a specific area of faithfulness. These crowns will determine the degree or extent of each of our authority in God's kingdom. Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. So, as we endure trials, believers will be rewarded with crowns of victory. First, there's a crown of rejoicing or crown of exaltation that is given to us who faithfully minister the gospel to the lost. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Second, there is the crown of righteousness given to us who eagerly wait and look for Christ's return. 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Third, there is the crown of glory given to us who faithfully serve as elders or shepherds to God's flock. 1 Peter 5.4 And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now believers, we need to take stock of how many of these crowns we can expect to receive at the judgment seat of Christ. Are we ministering the gospel to the lost? Are we looking eagerly for Christ's return? And if you're in leadership, are you serving faithfully? How you answer those questions will inform you as to what you can expect to receive from Christ. Some of you may have much. Some of you may have little. Now, fourth, there is a crown of life given to believers who endure trials, testings, and tribulation, including martyrdom for Christ's sake. James 1.12 Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, the crown of life is given to those who are victorious over trials. What does it mean to be victorious over trials? It means you and I need to develop a biblical attitude towards trials, asking God for wisdom so that we can endure the trial 
and be joyful through the trial. How many of you can say with confidence that you will receive the crown of life? Now James says that the crown of life, as well as the other crowns, are promised to those who love him. Promised, a pangelo, means to make a verbal commitment to do something in the future. And we need to note here that God promise, God's promises do not fail. Joshua 21, 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord has made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Romans 4, 21. Being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. 2 Corinthians 1, 20. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Will God keep his promises? Yes. According to Hebrews 10.23, he who promised is faithful. Faithful, pistos, refers to someone who is trustworthy or dependable. Because God is faithful, trustworthy, dependable, he will keep his promises. And the reason his promises do not fail is because God cannot lie. Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Titus 1.2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Hebrews 6.18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now notice the promise regarding the crowns is only to those who love him. And those who love the Lord Jesus are those who obey his commands. John 14.15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now while there are many commands from the Lord, one command that is specific to the Epistle of James is the command to ask God for wisdom to endure trials. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. See, those of you who endure trials prove you received wisdom from God, which in turn proves that you asked God for wisdom as he commanded. Hence, by obeying his commands, you demonstrate it that you love the Lord and you're guaranteed the crowns of victory. Outward trials result in the present reward of joy and the future reward of crowns of victory. Having concluded his thoughts on inward trials, James now writes about outward temptations. James chapter 1 Verse 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James shifts from outward trials to inward temptations beginning in verse 13 with an aphorism or short pithy wisdom saying. Notice he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. The verb translated here as tempted translates the Greek verb pyrazo, which is also translated as trials depending upon the agent. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. 2 Peter 2.9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. 
Now, since James makes the case here that God is not the agent, the term is best translated as being tempted to sin. James says, he declares, that no one has the right to blame God for their temptation. Blaming God for temptation is exactly what Adam did when he sinned. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And just like Adam, believers today often blame their sin on God's sovereignty by claiming, Well, God predestined me to sin. Now, believer, if you think that God is the cause of your temptation, it underscores that you struggle to determine the difference between trials and temptations. Now, how can we know whether we're struggling with a trial or with a temptation? When God is the causing agent, we are encountering trials. And God uses the trial to prove the genuineness of our faith and produce spiritual maturity. If God is not the cause, then we're facing temptation. And the purpose of temptations is to cause us to sin. So we need to determine the purpose. Is this resulting in spiritual maturity or sin? And by determining that, we can say we're either facing a trial or temptation. So in order to determine the purpose, we would do well to pray and ask God for wisdom. See, while trials come from God, temptations never do. And as such, we should never charge God with tempting us to sin. Again, temptations do not come from God because, as James states, God cannot be tempted by evil. The verb cannot be tempted, aperastas, means that God is untemptable and has no experience with evil. He is totally free of evil because he is holy. Habakkuk 1.13 Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. First John 1 John 1.5 This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You see, my friends, because God is free of evil, he himself does not tempt anyone. However, God does allow temptations to come upon us from other sources, such as in the case of Job. That is why God promises in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that He is faithful and will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation provide the way of escape also so that we will be able to endure it. Now James again employs a triad to persuade us to understand the source of temptations is not God. Previously, James used three triads in verses 2 through 4 to provide us with three steps to deal with trials. Consider it pure joy, and know that the testing of faith produces endurance, and allow endurance to have its perfect result. He also gave us three results of trials. They purify faith, produce patience, and produce maturity. And he also gave us three results of endurance. We'll be perfect, we'll be complete, and we'll be lacking nothing. Now James uses a triad of metaphors, a fishing metaphor, a birth metaphor, and a death metaphor to explain the primary source of temptations. As well, James again employs a serrates. A serrates is a logical argument commonly found in New Testament epistles. It's a sequence of propositions in which one established predicate becomes the subject of the next proposition. 
And these propositions are linked together in a step-by-step chain that culminates in the climax of the argument. In James 1, 14 and 15, James uses Aceratis to demonstrate the purpose of the temptations. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Then, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, James begins his Sorites with a fishing metaphor. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The verb carried away, excelco, means to be enticed or lured away. Enticed, delizio, is a hunting or fishing term meaning to set a trap or bait a hook. And contextually, joining carried away and enticed means to lure or seduce someone into sin. No one is just going to sin. The sin must first be made to look enticing or attractive. And the key is that a person is lured into sin by his own lust. Believers, you entice yourself to sin. God did not make you do it, nor did the devil. Now, since James employs fishing terms, we would do well to consider of the fish. Fish do not bite a naked hook. The hook must be baited. The fish are lured to the bait, thinking they are going to get a meal. Little do they know that they are about to become the meal. Believers, we are just like fish. We think by pursuing our lust we are going to be satisfied, but instead the sin it produces destroys us. And that lust can entice us to sin is exactly why we cannot live according to our feelings. Instead, we have to live by faith and obedience to the word of truth. Now, James' fishing metaphor derives from Proverbs 7. In Proverbs 7, the fishing metaphor was used to compare lust to a harlot. Like a harlot, lust entices and seduces. In Proverbs 7, 7, and 10, the senseless young man succumbed to the allure of the harlot. I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking common sense. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. And his first mistake was passing by the corner where she worked. Proverbs 7, verse 8. Passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house. Over time... The harlot seduces, or excuse me, entices and seduces him. Proverbs 7.21 With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And foolishly, this senseless young man follows the harlot like an ox to the slaughter, not realizing that it will cost him his life. Proverbs 7.26-27 For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Notice where the problem began. The young man was where he did not belong. No one told him to go that way. He chose that way himself. See, James states that believers are lured into sin by their own lust. Hence, your lust is the source of your temptation. The verb enticed is a present participle underscoring that the luring into sin is an ongoing problem. Victory over your lust today does not guarantee victory of your lust on a different day. Now James continues 
his Sarites, with a birth metaphor. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now lust, epithumia, is an intense desire for something. Of themselves, desires are good and right. Luke twenty-two fifteen. Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Epithumia. Philippians 1, 23. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire, having the epithumia, to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short, pers- short while, in person, not in spirit. We're all the more eager with great desire, epithumia, to see your face. See, desires are God-given. When one person is hungry or thirsty, they desire food and drink. When another person is tired, they desire to rest. God gave those desires so the body would not wear out and die. But good desires left to intensify can become lust. If the desire for food becomes so great that an individual becomes gluttonous, then that is sin. Proverbs 23, 20-21. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will become to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. If the desire for rest leads one to be lazy, then that is a sin. Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. Lust conceives the method or means for taking the bait. Since lust always conceives in one's mind, believer, you must bring every thought captive with Christ and think only on things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good reputation. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Philippians 4.8 Brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good report, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell or think on these things. You see, when a desire or a lust is left unchecked, it conceives and then gives birth to sin. And once sin is birthed, it grows and develops unless it's terminated. And sin can only be terminated by repentance. Only believers have the capacity to stop the progress of sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James concludes his Sorites with a death metaphor. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The verb accomplished, apotaleo, means to bring something to its completion or end. Here the term sin is articular, meaning it has a definite article in the Greek text, implying that a particular sin is in view. Now, more than likely, James' original readers struggled with a specific, specific sin. Regardless of their particular sin, though, every believer must remember that any sin left unchecked will eventually bring forth divine discipline, resulting in death. Now, James is not saying that one sin necessarily results in death, though it could. For example, if someone drives under the influence of alcohol and crashes the vehicle and dies then they die due to the sin of drunkenness. Galatians 5.21, envies, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, while one act of sin may not result in death, the habitual practice of that sin will. 
when believers sin, the area in which they sinned becomes an area of weakness for the next temptation. And that is why sin must be terminated before it has a chance to grow into a habit. Now when James speaks of death as the result of sin, he's referring to physical death. And just as in the example above, sin can result in physical death. Now, of course, everyone's eventually going to die. But some die as a result of sin, meaning that the sin resulted in their dying before their appointed time. And believers, even we are not exempt from dying before our appointed time. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine to 30. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. My friends, any believer, if you are practicing sin, you need to be aroused to repentance and cease whatever sin you are practicing, lest God remove you before your time. Now, you might balk at that idea to think, well, why would God take the life of a believer before their appointed date of death? You might rationalize that death cannot be a punishment for the believer because that would immediately place them in the presence of God. Thus, you would argue that death is a blessing and not a curse. And certainly, death is a blessing for a believer in most cases. But don't forget to take into account that your presumptuous death will have cost you the opportunity to earn more crowns which in turn will directly impact your service in the millennial kingdom. A further thought. Though James distinguishes between trials and temptations, there is a relationship between the two. Sometimes outward trials can turn into inward temptations. Consider an example from Abraham's life. God commanded him to go to Canaan. But when Abraham arrived, the land was plagued by a famine, which meant no food or water to care for his flocks. God sent the famine to try the genuineness of Abraham's faith. Instead of depending on God to provide, Abraham trusted in himself. In his lust for provisions, Abraham gave in to the temptation and went down to Egypt. And while in Egypt, he had plenty of provisions, but he also lied about his wife and almost lost his life. Abraham failed the test. And he bore the scars of his sin in Egypt for the rest of his life. Believers, if you're struggling with God-given trials, and you don't ask for wisdom, you are leaning on your own understanding. And your lust or desire for an end to that trial will intensify. And it's going to tempt you to question God and His love. And at that moment, lust will conceive and bear the sin of rebellion against God. Believers, beware. See, there's five steps in the progress of sin. First, it begins with a desire. Then the conception, the temptation. Then the birth or the giving into the temptation. Then the growth or the habitual practice of sin. And then finally, death. At any time during those first four steps, you have the opportunity to terminate that sin. However, once death comes, it's too late. My friends, do not trifle with sin. If you have sin in your life, terminate it by repenting 
and forsaking it. Now, some of you may believe that once you're saved, your sin nature has been eradicated and you cannot be tempted to sin. You're quick to quote Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Perhaps you quote 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But I give you a warning. If you're quoting Romans 6, 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, 17 as proof text that your sin nature has been eradicated, then you are guilty of divorcing these verses from their context and dismissing the rest of Scripture. See, in Romans 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is explaining the believer's position in Christ, not their practice. Positionally, we have died to sin, Romans 6, 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. But the term died, apothenon, means to separate, not cease. Believers did not cease to sin. Instead, believers are positionally separated from sin because they're spiritually seated with Christ in heaven. However, practically, in their present physical reality, Believers struggle with sin. Romans 7, 18-21 For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm, going, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Paul confesses that he still struggles with sin. And later he tells us that the first step to overcoming sin is to make no provision for it. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. My friend, if you think you're incapable of sinning, ask yourself why Paul would issue a command to make no provision for sin. And the answer is simple. Because we are capable of sin. And to those of you who think you're incapable of sin, I'd like to give you the warning of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So in order to avoid or overcome the temptation, we would do well to adopt two things, two practices. First, you need to know yourself and avoid areas where you will be susceptible to temptation. And second, we must daily commit ourselves to fleeing temptation and pursuing godly qualities. 2 Timothy 2.2 Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider the outward trials and inward temptations, we thank you for making things clear to us. Thank you, Father, that trials have a purpose not only to mature us, but also to prove the genuineness of our faith. Now thank you, Father, that as we endure these trials, you reward us at present with joy, but also as well, Father, in the future with crowns. Father, I pray that each of us might examine our lives and to see where we are in terms of these crowns. 
You've promised to give them to us, but only if we love you. And love you means obeying what you've commanded us to do. Father, we recognize that our future service in your kingdom is dependent upon the crowns we earn in this life. And so, Father, help us to take stock. Help us to examine ourselves and to make changes where we need to make changes so that we will be guaranteed a reward, a crown at your return. Father, as well as we consider these outward temptations, we're confronted with the fact, Lord, that they come from within. We can't blame you. We can't blame Satan. We only can blame ourselves. And so, Father, keep us from those areas where we should not be. Help us, Father, to that end. Lord, our flesh is weak, but our spirit is willing. But nonetheless, Father, we struggle with sin. So, Father, I pray that you might help us. Help us to not put ourselves where we should not be. Help us to know ourselves. And, Father, as well, help us to safeguard ourselves. Not only by not going where we shouldn't go, but by fleeing the temptation when it comes and in its place pursuing godliness. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.